0: Well, good morning, everyone. It is a wonderful day to be here together to worship God, and I believe 100% He has been worshipped. He has been glorified in our hearts individually and collectively. It's a good day. We are individuals imperfect, and when we come together, I know in many ways we may be imperfect as a body. And so I'm hopeful as a a congregation we can grow together. I think every teacher that comes up and, and gives a lesson, our goal is to Help us grow as a congregation, both individually and collectively. So I'm looking forward to see uh, what we can learn from Galatians chapter 4 today. So Chris alternated. Chris and I have been alternating. He had chapter 3 last week, and I'm going to try to do the same thing. I'm going to try to take that whole T-bone down today in chapter 4. So uh, we'll do our best to get through it. And we're going to start off just with an outline, going back over what is the outline, where have we been, where are we going, and kind of the keynote verse to me of this whole book, I'm going to keep stating it was it, is what's coming soon, where he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So this is kind of the theme of our whole letter. Remember, this is Paul writing to the Galatian churches in the region of Galatia, and We started off in chapter 1, Paul defending his apostleship. He was reminding them of the divine origin of his gospel. He got it from God. He got it from uh, the Savior. And his relationship to the apostles to prove that he was legitimate. Uh, In his early years as a Christian, we talked about the Jerusalem Council. We talked about how James, Cephas, and John kind of gave him the go-ahead. They confirmed you're doing, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, We learned about Peter's rebuke last time I taught and how we started to get into that lesson on justification by faith. This is a huge theme of the book of Galatians. Chris really got deep into that last week in chapter 3. And he's going to continue that argument through chapter 4 that I'm covering today. And in Chris's chapter, we covered the, covered the personal argument. Things like, how did, were you really justified in the first place? Did you start out by faith and then all of a sudden, okay, now we're good, we don't need faith anymore, now we can just be on our own work, stand on our two feet... No, the personal argument doesn't work. And he's arguing that they, on a personal basis, should know that they need faith as their justification. That word justification, remember, meaning to be made right, to be made justified in God's sight. And so even in their personal uh, argument, uh, they know that's true. The scriptural argument, Chris talked about those themes from the Old Testament, took us a long way through the Old Testament to show us uh, why they should know. That it was through a seed of faith, through Abraham, that that we are saved. And today we're going to get into the practical argument. And the sentimental argument and the symbolic argument. Within this practical argument, a couple of the main ideas he's going to say here is that in Christ they are one as children of God, which are Abraham's seed and heirs of the promise. The second main point is that they are redeemed from the law and adopted as sons. They are no longer slaves, but heirs. And after that, we're going to continue on in chapter 4. It's going to cover the sentimental argument or their relationship argument. He's going to be prying on the relationship he has had with them in the past to help convince them. He's going to talk about his fears, Paul's personal fears, over their returning to some kind of bondage. And we're going to talk about what that bondage is. We've already had a lot of hints of it in the past. And we're going to talk about their past and present relationship to Paul. Finally, the symbolic argument. He's going to use some symbols from the Old Testament, not unlike what was covered last week. Okay, and in chapter 5, after what I cover today, it's going to be kind of an application. Because of all this, he's going to, he's going to call them to stand strong in the liberty of Christ. And that's going to be a liberty that excludes circumcision. Keynote note, that's, that's Old Testament. A liberty that fulfills the old law. It's a liberty in which one is led by the Spirit, we're going to see what that means, and liberty with a sense of responsibility. So that's what's coming, and we're going to get a little up to speed now with Galatians chapter 3, the ending verses there, to kind of run into chapter 4, because it's all based on what he just said in chapter 3. Paul says, Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, Truly, righteousness would have been by the law. So he's trying to convince them, like Chris taught last week, that that the law didn't do it. If it would have worked, great, it would have been done. We've already tried that. It did not work, and they should know that. But the scripture is confined all under sin. They're stuck under sin. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It confined all under sin to show us that it was the only way out to have Jesus our Savior. Verse 23, but before faith came... Before that, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Okay, there we go. There's a huge uh, key point. He's going to talk a lot about the law and this previous being kept and trained. And a lot of people try to make this all about just law in general. But this is a very specific law that was training them. So he's talking about the Old Testament. The Old Testament law was what taught us and prepared us for Christ so that we might be justified by faith, so that we could see it wasn't by our own works, that we can never save ourselves. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Notice, he doesn't say we no longer have any need for a law. There, there are some general principles of law in general that yes, by following works of a law, we cannot earn our salvation. But the law, this tutor, this Old Testament law, we're not under it anymore, because uh, the it's, ser- its purpose was served. But he's not saying we have no need for any law. We're gonna learn more in other. Uh, in other chapters about this, but the law of Christ is a law of liberty. It's a law of freedom that guides us. And uh, and he's talking about the Old Testament here. Verse 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in, faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you are baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Okay, so this is this is directly linking to the next chapter. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We're going to talk about these heirs in the beginning of chapter 4, but I love that picture of the mustard seed in the parable Jesus teaches about how the, the, the church and, and God's plan started out as a, a small, tiny seed but grew into a tree that would, that would nest all the birds of the air and provide uh, shelter. This is this great seed that started with Abraham and is now continuing with us today in faith. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave. Okay, so he's going to get into like a little realistic. If you were an heir of an estate or an heir of an inheritance and you had maybe servants working in the household, he's going to say that heir, as long as he's a child... He doesn't differ at all from a slave. He doesn't have any responsibility. He doesn't have any authority. He doesn't really have much freedom. If you're a little kid and your dad is this great uh, financial mogul, if he has a lot of money, a lot of real estate, as a child, you have none of that. You're just kind of powerless. Though he is master of all, because that child is going to inherit all things one day, but when they're young, they, they don't have any of it. But he is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. So this is setting up the whole discussion of being a slave and how that child is like a slave even under the Old Testament. We might think only, you know, sin is slavery. Well, it's true. But the Old Testament confined them under sin so that they didn't have a way out because it didn't have a Savior yet. So... We So he's talking about they as Jews were slaves as children under the old law because they were under guardians and stewards speaking of the Old Testament until the time appointed by the father. And realistically speaking, the father has the right to decide when his child gets the inheritance just like the father decided when it was time for Jesus. And this is uh, kind of an analogy. These kids right here have absolutely no authority. These are like the Jews in the Old Testament, they had no authority. They had no real power until things were granted to them through, their, through the Savior, Jesus Christ. And just like they had a great inheritance, they might be master of all, kings of England and queens of England. Right now, they don't have any power like that. And Paul is drawing a comparison here to the old law. He says, even so we, under the Old Testament, when we were children... We're in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son. So the question I asked as I was first going through this, what what are these elements? What are are you in bondage to? And there's a clue right here at the end of this verse 4. When the fullness of the time had come, there was a change. The change happened when God sent forth His Son. So the elements of the world isn't just sin itself, the elements of the world, is some kind of early form of God's plan. And uh, Thayer defines elements as the first principles, or any first thing from which others belonging to the same series or composite whole take their rise. And uh, he compared it in his description to an alphabet, to someone who's going to be a seasoned writer or uh, do anything with language or reading or writing, The elementary principles, the elements of a writer or a reader, is the ABCs. It is the first thing. The ABCs would be the first thing from which all the other things would come from. Now, for them, this is not what they're doing. This is Christianity. This is taking the elements, the elementary principles of something, and learning it so that you can become something later. This is a picture of Christianity if the alphabet is the elements. And what he says they're doing is they're like an adult, kind of just reciting the alphabet over and over. It's like getting through all your schooling, getting a college degree, and then going and and just using the alphabet. And going back and practicing your alphabet over and over. He's like, what was the point of learning the elements? You learn the elementary principles for a purpose to be later gone into. And it's both immature and it defeats the purpose of the alphabet itself if you're just going to use the alphabet later in life. He says, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements, the elementary principles of the Judaic Judaic faith, of all of the plan God set up. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, This under the law is marking the transition point. He's trying to show us that this is a hinge point where everything changes. To redeem those who were under the law. That we might receive the adoption as sons. We're told here that God redeemed us. That is to purchase something that was maybe owned by another. We were under slaves to sin and God redeemed us or purchased us from under the law. So that we would be adopted and receive adoption as sons. Now, since my aunt and uncle adopted their youngest daughter, uh, Addison, it has been really cool to see the full blending of the family. They, it, she was adopted at such a young age that it doesn't even feel like she was adopted. It feels like she's just normally part of the family. There was no other adoption happened. And that's the beauty of God's plan too is... That's the intention, is that as an adopted son or daughter, you should feel just as much a part of God's family as Jesus himself even. We're told that we are joint heirs with Christ. We are adopted as sons. And because you are sons, now if I read this phrase, if I'm gonna, because I'm a son of the creator of this universe, because I am an heir of everything from God, I probably want to listen to what comes after because if I were to tell you or if you were to tell me that you had an heir that was going to leave you a large estate and because of that, you know, you're going to get X, Y, Z, I would be listening very closely to hear what's going to come of this. He says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. The great inheritance that we can enjoy now is the spirit of his son in our hearts that would cry out to God from a place of closeness and trust to where we would use terms like we do and talk to our own parent. God has many names in the Bible. He has various ways of being addressed and they have their own purpose. But this is, this is one of the best of all the Bible to me. He's called Almighty, he's called Prince of Peace, he's called uh, the Savior, he's called so many things. But we can call him Abba, Father. God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son so that we could claim that for ourselves. So that we could have how Jesus is able to call God Father. We can do that too. This word Abba, Father, we can take from this, the key ideas are intimacy and loving authority. There's a lot of people that, I, man, in researching this, there's a million things people want to explain from this and go into, and maybe you can do that on your own time, but the, the simple, simplest way to, to explain it is we have that kind of uh, love and an authority figure and intimacy with our God. And every single good thing that we could think about from a good father, we should attach to God. Every single good connotation Because God is the perfect father, every good connotation of a father, we should take from this. We should take that he's a caregiver, he's a protector, a comforter. He teaches the ways of life. He gives a caring mentorship, quality time he loves to spend with his children, understanding with us. He has authority that gives us clarity and purpose. When 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 there's not an authority figure in the home of the father, there's a lack of clarity and purpose and drive. God provides that as a loving father. He takes care of physical needs. He has emotional support, encouragement, and the list would go on and on. And as we talk about this, I know the reality is not everyone can hear that phrase of us calling God Father and feel it the same way. Because you may think about your father in an experience to what you related to. And you can know that it's not your father, good or bad that you are answering to, that you are coming to in prayer. It is the perfect Father. It is the complete Father who does do all the right things, who does handle situations all the right way. And for some people, you, you, don't, you have to learn that. You have to learn that view of God. But I think in, in reality, part of the reason people are frustrated with their own example is because they know what it's supposed to look like. If you didn't have that great example, you know intuitively what you should see in a father, what you should be comforted by and strengthened by. And that's a beautiful thing to learn. I encourage you, search the scriptures and see what it really means for God to be the father and to appreciate that in your own life in your own way, to understand what that might mean for you and what you might have to learn about a good father. And the other thing it says here is that the spirit of his son into our hearts should lead us to cry out. When God, when the spirit of his son, through what we learn and through our great saving, should happen is we should cry out to the Lord. We should cry out to our Abba Father. Not with uncertainty. You don't cry out when you're uncertain. You cry out and that's not like a, a, a negative cry out. It's a, it's a rejoicing. It's a... It's a full certainty and full coming to the throne. Don't praise God timidly or half-heartedly is one of the lessons from this. May we cry out with confidence when we sing. May our spirits cry out to a father wholeheartedly. And I encourage especially the men. The, The challenges in life and the responsibilities that can kind of harden the heart and make us need to step up and handle things and just kind of deal with it can make us a little calloused, can make us hardened by our challenges, to where maybe it's harder for for a lot of men to cry out to a loving Father. I encourage the men, cry out to the Lord, because that's what the Bible says should happen in our heart with the Spirit of His Son within us. Verse 7, Therefore you are no longer a slave, But a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now, this this section, this discussion of what we could have been in slavery, whether it was slaves to sin, whether it was slaves to the Old Testament, in their own attempt to be justified by the by the law. We read of a we can understand a very serious progression. It was would have been wonderful of God to not punish us to the full extent of what we deserved. We deserved the plan and the the system of punishment God designed is to be separate from Him. And what that means to be separate from God is punishment in an everlasting hell. We deserve that. But just to not be punished to the full extent would have been gracious. Not only that, but He reduced our sentence. God took our sentence and reduced it. He didn't just reduce it a little bit. He completely wiped it out. Not only did he completely wipe it out, our sentence, but we were set free completely. We are not on house arrest, so to speak. We are set free from sin and from bondage. And not only are we set free and just kicked out to be on our own, we are given support for a whole new life to go into. That all would have been plenty. But to be named as a beneficiary in his own house... To be named a son and an heir of God through Christ is so far beyond what we deserved. That is that is grace and that is mercy fully fleshed out. And I think we can understand and appreciate that heirship maybe in different ways. As a young person, as I think about what that would mean to have a great inheritance, I think about being set up for your future There's a lot of things as a young person you're trying to get in order and try to like set up a path and set things up early so that you get the benefits in the long term. Uh, Maybe getting a house, getting your investments started the right way. I think about as a young person how we want to set ourselves up for the future. And that is definitely true in the airship from God. We are set for the future. We don't have to worry about what's going to come of our future. We have a sure plan and a sure inheritance coming beyond what we may ever be able to achieve on our own. For the middle-aged people, as I was talking to my dad, he, he was saying as he's getting closer to retirement, one of the things he's really wanting to do is make sure he leaves us something that is valuable. And he said, you know, I don't have like, you know, every parent would want to give their child everything. As inheritance, you know, you want to set them up for forever, so they don't never have a financial worry or whatever it might be. And he said, you know, I don't, I don't have that massive inheritance to just give to you guys. And so the the mind tries to think, what can I leave behind that'll be valuable to you? And for the middle age, the value you can give is in spiritual things. The value you have left to give that's going to be worthwhile because money's going to fade. Every parent wants to give what they can, and there's a true, sincere desire there, but that's not going to really take care of anyone who's left as your beneficiary. For middle-aged people, your value to give is in spiritual things. Your value to provide and mentor and strengthen and ultimately to lead others to is the heirship of God. That's where the true value is. And for older folks... For many people, a lot of times the, the sentiment is there is nothing left for me to see. I've seen it all. I've, I've been, experienced the joys of life. I've experienced the highs. I've experienced the lows. I've had the successes from the low to the high. I've, I've enjoyed the blessings of having stability and maybe and even wealth. And maybe at this point for a lot of people, uh, maybe that's the peak of your earnings or your, your savings is all there. Maybe that's for you. I don't know your case. But for many older people, there's nothing left to see. Nothing left to maybe do. You are limited in many ways. And what an awesome thing that it doesn't end right there. Nothing left to see. That ye, the best is yet to come. That in all of these things, that the heirship that you are set to receive, while you might be thinking about your heirs, you are about to be an eternal heir of an eternal reward in heaven with God. Everything is ahead of you. There are things left to see. It's just not earthly. We have great value in our airship. As children of God. Verse 8. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those by which nature are not gods. So he's already been appealing to the elementary principles of the world, which I believe are the basics of God's plan for the world and, and the Jewish religion. And I think he's also here referring to the people who did not know God and who were worshiping false gods, idolatry. He says, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. Romans tells us that they would turn to the birds and the rocks and the trees and say, you, we came from you. They, were not, they by nature are not gods. And it is mind-blowing to think about how people serve these things in world religions. If you look back at, through time, the way people turn to the greater elements of the world, the, the, the wind, the, the planets, all these things, they turned to those things, and they weren't going, intending to be heirs of that. They were maybe taking their heart, that desire to worship a God. They were taking that desire to what they could see around them. But they didn't, they didn't have an heirship with their creator or their greater being. So if you compare Christianity to many world religions the fact that some people serve what they claim to be a God not intending to be an heir of Him, it's mind-blowing that we serve a God that we are going to be an heir of. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? This could be any of the elements, whether it's the elementary principles of of Judaism that they were not supposed to stay in, or whether it was the elements of the natural war that they might have been worshiping as idols. He said, why in the world, after you've known God and all of his goodness and his inheritance and his saving, how in the world are you going to turn to the weak and beggarly elements? I love it. It's, it's almost hilarious that he's like, that's, that's, that's weak and they're broke. Those gods you're trying to turn back to, the things you're trying to serve, that's, they're broke compared to your god beggarly, weak elements, which you desire, again, to be in bondage to. And I believe that especially the Old Testament can be called bondage. Benny Cryer says it well in his commentary. He says, Old Testament was bondage because it was the law without the Savior. There was no plan of salvation. There was no Savior in that law, and so it's bondage. You're stuck there if you're these Jews, And I like how he just pointed out a little side note. After you've known God, or rather are known by God, this is where the true blessings are. Jesus says, many will say to me, no, I knew you. I, I did all these things for you. But Jesus said, I, I never knew you. And there's, a, a, there's kind of an allusion to this idea right here. God must know us too. Does God know us? Not only do we think we know God. We, you know, people say a lot of times, I, I, have, I know my relationship with God. Okay, that's great. But does God know you? And for God to know you, we have to know, what does it mean? What does God want from me? He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. Now this, I believe, uh, is specifically talking about the Old Testament, but it could probably also mean there are idolatrous uh, observances of feasts and special times of the year, solstices maybe, all those things. He says, I'm afraid for you lest I have labored for you in vain. This is about as sincere as it can get in a plea. He's deep into the sentimental argument right now. I'm afraid for you. Out of all the arguments he could make, out of all the things he could try to plead with them, it's a very powerful argument to say, dude, I'm just afraid And what you're getting into. I don't want you to go down this path because I know what it leads to lest I have labored for you in vain. Now, many times when people start to slip away from truth, they don't see how, how dangerous it is, how serious it is. And he's saying, he's making a an intensifier here by saying that I'm concerned it's all for nothing. Now, maybe they would have expected him to say, it's just not a good thing. It's going to hold you back, but it's not really going to affect you that much. Maybe they would think that way. But he's intensifying it and saying, it is worthless all the work I've done for you. It is in vain. The whole thing, all this stuff is just useless if you go back to where you came from and go back to the old law. It's a serious intensifier here. This is a wake-up call. This isn't just a small thing where you should really try to improve in this area. He's like, no, it's all pointless if you, if you don't listen to me right now. He says, brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. Now we hear that like, whoa, whoa, become like me. What are you trying to say, Paul? I thought everyone was supposed to be like Christ. Well, what he's talking about is the context of he became like them in that he left Judaism. And became like a Gentile to these people. Many of the the Jews considered Paul to be leaving the faith, a Gentile. He became like the Gentiles. By becoming all things to all men. And leaving behind the old law. He became like them to teach them the word. To bring them into God's family. And now he, he went out of his way to leave that to come to them. And they're about to go back to what he just left. He says, I did this already. I left that. Don't do what I left. I left the Old Testament. I became like you. So be like me. And then I left and I became like you. He says, you have not injured me at all. Now, it doesn't mean that they didn't do anything wrong. He's making a personal appeal. Basically, he's going to talk about how they've always been good to him. They've always been so kind and, and taken care of him in different ways. And so he says... You know, you haven't injured me at all. You, you've been good to me this whole time. But really, they're, they're in danger of, of strongly injuring him if they don't turn around. Verse 13, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. He says there was something. He doesn't tell us what it is. There's a lot of commentators that say it was his eyes because of what he's about to say. I, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given to me. Some people say it was his eyes. But then there's some clues that make it seem like it might have been something else. We don't know. He had some kind of physical issue, some kind of sickness, that made him stay there in Galatia for an extended amount of time and preach the gospel to you at the first. We learn in Acts chapter 14 and 16, he took different trips to Galatia. This was likely the first trip in Acts chapter 14. And he stayed there for an extended amount of time. And I just think it's, it's awesome that, you know, many people, if they had a physical infirmity, that would be an excuse to not do the work. For Paul, that was an excuse to do the work just in a specific way in how he was limited. May we not use our infirmities as a way to get out of doing the work of God. But maybe it just changes what we do. Maybe it refines our focus in a different way. I'm going to read this next verse out of the ESV because I think it makes the wording more clear and actually more accurate from what many of the commentators were saying. So in verse 14 it says, And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So somehow his trial was a trial to them also. So his infirmity or something about his illness was a trial to them, but they, they received him As an angel of God, throughout the Bible, angels of God are messengers. And they took him and honored him and took care of him and didn't just toss him out on the curb. They were so good to him and he appreciates that. He's reminding them of how they've always had such a good relationship. Verse 15, what then has become of your blessedness? You started so good, what's happened to that? Now back in the New King James, For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Now, this is why many people say he had an issue with his eyes, okay? So that not made so much sense to me, but then when you read, somehow that condition was a trial to them. Some people say that it was, he had some kind of disease that he was like hard to look at or hard to listen to speak. I don't know. It makes, still makes more sense to me that it's his eyes. Maybe they had to help him out in some way. I don't know. Whatever the case is, he says, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Whether that means it's a, it's a hyperbole saying, you would have done anything for me. You would have given up anything to take care of my needs. Whether it's that or whether it was his eyes that were the problem. And they would have given them their own eyes to him. Who knows for sure. But the whole point is the same. These people, these Galatians, were so good to Paul in the past. And they had a great relationship. They would have done anything for him. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? After all this... I'm teaching you what's right, and am I going to become your enemy because of that? They zealously court you. They, speaking of the Judaizing teachers, so the people who are trying to pull them back to the Old Testament, to circumcision, the old law, he says they zealously court you. They're really, really trying to get you and show interest in you, but for no good. It's not a good reason. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. It's interesting, the word exclude doesn't seem to fit here. They want to exclude them from all the promises of God. Paul is saying that if they get what they're going for, they're going to be excluding you from God's blessings, from God's saving family, and from the promise of Jesus Christ. Is there a good reason for that? No. No. It's all so that you may be zealous for them. It's about them. It's not about your own interest, he says. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always. And not only when I am present with you. That makes me ask the question, you know, how were they when Paul was there? It could be easy to, you know, when certain people are around to act a certain way. Like we talked about before, putting on a mask. It could be easy to put on a Christian mask or to act a certain way Or to be a certain level of of zealous when the situation's right. But what if Paul were literally standing here today? What if Paul were here? Would you step up your game? Would I step up my game? In my personal life, in my fleeing from sin, in my running to what's right, and filling my life with good things, and taking on the evangelical word of the Lord? How would I act if Paul were here? Because it sounds like they acted a little bit different and kind of started to regress when Paul wasn't there. What if Jesus were here? And I changed that sentence, not what if Jesus were here, because Jesus sees every. He sees it all. God is among us. We just don't see Him. What if we could see him? Would that change the way we act? Would that change the motivations, the zealousness for good things? Or would, we, or would we be the same way we are right now? Would we be more zealous? Would we be more focused on things that God says matters? If we could see Jesus. Verse 19. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. So Paul feels a very parental care over them. He talks about, you know, different people are sons in the faith. It's a parental, you feel responsible and you feel like you want to help someone so deeply when you have people who you're responsible for spiritually, but he calls them little children. He doesn't just call them children. He, he has that modifier. It's like that immaturity is still there. That, that lack of, of spiritual maturity to move on from the old law, they're going back to be children under the Old Testament. But it shows his concern. He says, for whom I labor in birth again. That's some serious language for a man to try to use that kind of terminology. It's, he's got to be bold. He's got to know what he's talking about. Because I've heard men feel like make comments about they might know what it feels like for a woman to go through birth. And those women give them a death stare because you don't know what it's like to go through childbirth. And Paul is pretty serious here. It pains him. And he is going through the process of trying to teach them all over again. It's it's painful, but it's worth it. That's the beauty of childbirth. It is all worth it in the end. Something beautiful comes of it. And it is a process for Paul here to work through them again. Now, the the first time it was to teach them and convert them, this again is to kind of reteach and go back over and and re-get them back on the right track until Christ is formed in you. And I know many of you remember that lesson Frank taught, until Christ is formed in you. This implies that it's understood by someone who teaches the word to others and tries to strengthen others, and it's understood by God himself that people take time, people take patience to continually be teaching. That's why the blood of Christ must continually cleanse us. It must continue to work on us. It must continue to work on the people we're working on teaching. And it's a process of Christ becoming formed within us. But it doesn't take away from the urgency, as Frank mentions in his lesson, the urgency that's required. Because this is serious enough to be like childbirth. Verse 20, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone. So remember, this is a letter. It's not Paul standing in front of him. This is a letter. I wish I could be there because I have doubts about you. To change my tone. Okay, now he's going to get into the symbolic argument. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law. So remember, he's still talking about the old law. Because he says, do you not hear the law? Do you not hear what the Old Testament is saying? Are you not even listening to the thing you are trying to go back to? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Isaac and Ishmael. He had two sons. One by a bondwoman, Hagar. The other by a free woman, Sarah. And uh, Hagar was their, was their Gentile servant. But he who was of the bondwoman, Ishmael, was born according to the flesh. According to the flesh, meaning, number one, it wasn't with faith, because God, uh, God told Abraham he was going to have a kid, and he didn't follow the promised way through Sarah. He went and did the natural thing and just got a servant, and that was the normal way it gets done. But was born according to the flesh, That's how Ishmael was born. And he of the free woman, which was Isaac, through promise. Which things are symbolic. So you have the two kind of big nations, the two diversions of faith and flesh. And Isaac came through Sarah, which was a child of promise. We talked about that a lot in Hebrews already. For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. So Mount Sinai, that was the old law. God gave uh, Moses the old law uh, on Mount Sinai. And Hagar symbolizes that. Now, you might say, that's a little interesting. Because that's the old law, but Hagar was a slave, so she wasn't really like a priest or anything. Okay, we'll, we'll come back to that. Verse 25, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. So the great irony here, the bondman was supposed to be, the bond woman was supposed to be kind of anti-Jewish. She wasn't of the faith. But now that bond woman is a representation of the Jews who are staying in Judaism. It's kind of a great irony here that she represents what they are supposed to be leaving behind. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. Sarah is referring to who that mother of us all is. The Jerusalem above is free. And that's the freedom in Christ that we have. It's not a physical Jerusalem. It's not the Jews trying to stay in Judaism. It's the Jerusalem that's above. It's God's plan through faith. For it is written, rejoice, O barren, you, do not he- rejoice, o barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate, this is speaking of Sarah, or the one who had to have faith has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. That's us. We are symbolized, not by Ishmael, but by Isaac. We are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. So Ishmael persecuted and kind of picked on Isaac and so that's why the Scripture says, Nevertheless, what the Scriptures say, cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Sarah said this and had Ishmael cast out, sent him out in the wilderness. That's a whole discussion on its own. But he's saying even now, the Jews who should be living according to faith are living according to the flesh, And they are persecuting you who are trying to be of faith. It's like a role reversal. The Jews that are supposed to be of faith are doing the persecuting that has been repeated through centuries ago. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but children of the free. This is the freedom in Christ. This is kind of the whole point of Paul's point he's making. And this is going to bring us to the end of chapter 4. We are children of the free woman. We are free in Christ. Yes, we are free from having to justify ourselves through works. We would, would have been responsible under the old law to do it perfectly. Otherwise, you're stuck in sin. But today, we can also be stuck in sin. And so we can be free in any account. We have freedom through Christ. Through faith in Him. Through what He brings us in salvation. Promised ages ago... Uh, even back to Abraham and Isaac. I hope we can take something from this and I hope we can cry out to the Father with love and appreciation because we are his heirs because of this. And if today you're not one of those heirs, as was said earlier, basically, how could you not? He said, how could you go back? But how could you not want to be an heir of his? To not serve the weak and beggarly things, the, all the riches and the things that are empty in this life. How could you not want to move on to serve God, to come believing in Him from understanding His plan, to repent and change your life, to become walking by the Spirit and not walking according to just what we want, but to change our lives, to follow Him, to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that we are saved through Him and be baptized for the remission of your sins, to be added to his church. As Chris read last week, uh, when we are baptized into Christ, we put on Christ. If you've already done this, and you're already a member of God's family, but you want to make something right, and if you need support of the brethren, we are happy to take care of that. Always stand and always say. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information,